show mercy or not to show mercy? That is the question. Uh, that is the question that Hosea is looking at in Hosea chapter 2. Uh, today we continue our study in the book of Hosea and we will see that God holds judgment in one hand and mercy in another. Now, which do you want? Of course, we want God's mercy. And so this passage reminds us that there's hope. No matter how far gone a person may seem, how far away he or she is from the Lord, there's always hope. There's always a way back. God's arms are always open and anyone can run to him and he will receive them with open, welcoming, loving arms. So this passage in Hosea 2 can help remind us of that, that if we are experiencing judgment, it's due to our own choices. We can come back to God and receive love and forgiveness from him. And we'll see that in the nation of Israel also in Hosea chapter 2. So I will read this in sections and then we will discuss it. First I'll read the first part which is on Israel's unfaithfulness. We can see the title here, Israel's unfaithfulness punished. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now the second part of this passage, we will look at the Lord's mercy on Israel. Uh, but first, their unfaithfulness punished. So throughout Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Hosea, we've seen at times God saying that he is giving mercy and then at times saying that he doesn't uh, give mercy. Um, we can look at Hosea 1.6 and he says, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. And then Hosea 8 uh, also says no mercy. 
And then we see Hosea 2.1. He says, you have received mercy. And then Hosea 2.4. Again, I will have no mercy. Then Hosea 2.19. In steadfast love and in mercy, he will betroth them. And then again in verse 23. He says, I will have mercy on no mercy. So when we read all of this, we can be a little bit confused. Like, wait, is God giving them mercy or not giving them mercy? There's an apparent contradiction. Now the answer is that these are two different time periods being discussed. In the short term, God is saying, my patience has reached its limit. The people have repeatedly rebelled against the Lord and turned to idols Therefore, God has made up his mind. He's going to punish them. And that is likely talking about the Assyrian exile for the northern kingdom. They were going to be conquered by Assyria and taken away to foreign lands. These sins that they had committed were going to be judged. God was not going to save them this time, although he had before. But we're reminded that God's judgment and his mercy are often seen side by side. Here's Habakkuk's prayer to God. And he says, in wrath, remember mercy. God was going to judge Israel. But it would not be a final separation from God and his blessings. After the short-term judgment was delivered without mercy, God would once again show favor on his people and finally restore them to himself. So this was not a final cut or a final break from Israel or Judah. So again, we see God's justice and his mercy side by side, perfectly balanced. And this is encouraging for us to remember that when God disciplines us, he does so with a purpose. He wants to restore us to himself. That is his final goal. And here's a side note for Uh, parents or teachers or those with responsibility who may need to execute uh, discipline upon someone, that your final goal should be repentance and restoration. This is especially applicable to parents. The goal of discipline should be restoration. That's what we see with the Lord in the book of Hosea and really throughout all of Scripture. So going forward in verse 2 and forward, we see that the relationship between God and Israel is like a marriage. And throughout this chapter, we see that God compares his relationship to Israel as a marriage covenant. Now in chapter 1, we've seen that Hosea and Gomer and their marriage shows us something about the relationship between God and Israel. So God is using very vivid illustrations, a very vivid object lesson. Uh, Many, almost everyone would have been familiar with marriage, not necessarily through personal experience, but through seeing it. And so they would understand the ideas which he was sharing and using marriage as a... So the people would have understood the concept of marriage and love and faithfulness and forgiveness and these things that he was talking about. So this is a very powerful picture Uh, or object lesson which God is using to show real truths about his relationship with Israel. Now, in verse 2, a number of um, pronouns and people are mentioned. It's helpful if we go through that to see who is who here. He says, plead with 
your mother. Now, the your here is the individual Israelites. It's individual people. And the mother is Israel as a nation. Uh, she is, again, Israel as a nation. And my is God. Okay? And wife is Israel. So, God is telling the individual Israelites to plead with their mother, to plead with the nation to repent. Now, a person might say, what can I do? I'm only one person. The whole nation has chosen to rebel against God. Well, revival starts with one person. If individuals would stand uncompromisingly on the truth, refuse to follow the crowd to do evil, then they could start to change the nation little by little. Nations are composed of individuals, and these same nations fall off the moral cliff when masses of individuals go astray together like a flock of sheep. What is the application? You can stand up to the crowds. You should not say, well, my nation is so wicked, and, and what can I do? There's nothing I can do. Neither should you just follow the culture around you. You can shine a light. You can show people what it means to follow a higher standard, God's standard. Plead with your family. Plead with your friends to come to the Lord. You can make a difference for God one life at a time. So he used a very strong word here, plead. Like, don't give up, okay? Don't just say, this is destiny or this is fate or this is where the nation's going. There's nothing I can do to stem the tide. Every individual counts. You have your own decision to make in front of God, regardless of the decision that the country or the majority is making. Now, God says, she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Israel, as a nation, had rejected marriage to God. And it was as if they divorced him in their lust for others. So the relationship was broken. It wasn't broken because of God. God had not left them. It was broken because they had left him. Now, there's a lot of very vivid imagery here. And, and the Old Testament uses a lot of this type of imagery of adultery or prostitution to show how disgusting and evil it was when the people of Israel, whom God loved, whom God chose, he gave them every blessing, he was faithful, he gave them his covenant, they had a covenant relationship, and yet they broke the covenant relationship, chased after idols who did not love them, who were not real, and who gave them nothing, provided nothing for them. And so that was spiritual adultery. They forsook God to go after others. And you see in verse 5, their very intentional nature. She, again, that's Israel, said, I will go after my lovers. This is a very hard heart. That Israel is intentionally and willfully making a decision, saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after these other idols. I'm going to go after these other gods. I don't care what Yahweh thinks. So this was not just a heat of the moment mistake. These two choices were weighed and they consciously chose to abandon God in favor of false gods. Now let's bring this illustration back to marriage for a moment. Can you imagine if your spouse told you, okay, I'm going out the door now and I'm going to go commit adultery. That is extremely blatant and callous. Now, make no mistake, adultery in any situation, in any circumstance is totally wrong. 
Sometimes it happens through a heat of the moment uh, mistake, a lack standard, a moment of indiscretion, uh, some type of mistake. That's wrong. That's totally wrong. But Israel's sin did not fall into this category of an indiscretion or of a heat of the moment mistake. They planned to brazenly disobey God. They're basically like, I'm just going to go out and find another God and worship that God. And so they were very brazen and rebellious about it. And verse 6, it says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. So God is represented by this faithful and committed husband, and God saying, I will not let you go so easily. He sought to block her way with thorns and a wall. He's saying, I can prevent her from finding her lovers. I can prevent her from going after these false gods. I will block her way. And in the Old Testament history, God did many methods to try to discourage them from going after idols and false gods, uh, sometimes by using other nations to go to war with them and discipline them and things like that. Now, another thing is that they would certainly realize when they went after these uh, lovers that they were empty. These were things which had big promises but did not fulfill their promises or give them anything good in return. It says in verse 7, They shall pursue their lovers and not overtake them. She shall seek them but shall not find them. Okay? So basically, she will go after these other gods. And then when she gets to them, when she fulfills this desire, we'll find out they're empty. And they don't give the satisfaction. They don't give the joy and the peace or the meaning that they promise to give. And so this is really what it's like, isn't it, in the world. When you go after someone or something outside of God's will, that temptation has a big promise. It says, you will enjoy. You will have fun. It will be thrilling. You will like it. But when you actually go and do that temptation, you find out it is empty and it is meaningless and it doesn't bring the joy and commitment that, uh, the joy and contentment that is promised. Peter warns about this too. 2 Peter 2.17, he's talking about false teachers and he says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. So a false teacher is like a waterless spring. Can you imagine? You're in the desert. You're so, so thirsty. There's a sign saying, hey, spring this way. Get cool and fresh water. You follow the sign, you go to the spring and you find out there's no water there. Or for a farmer, who needs rain to water his crops so that they can grow. And there's been no rain for a long time. And finally, he sees some, some clouds, some mist coming that way. And he thinks, okay, great. It's finally going to rain and my crops will be watered. But when these clouds, this fog or this mist comes in, there is no rain, no water there. Okay, these are false promises. That's what temptation is like. And when you go back to the first temptation of Eve, by Satan, then he made her big promises. If you eat this fruit, you will not die. You'll be like God. Well, they were less like God than before. And in fact, Adam and Eve did die. So the promises did not come true. Now, think about 
your own life. Think about temptations that you face, temptations that have big promises. You will enjoy it. You will have fun. All these promises in the world. Think back on times when you believe those temptations, those promises, and you've done it. You know that they're empty. You know that it didn't fulfill you. And yet sometimes we go back and do those things again. Even though the first time we tried them, they weren't fulfilled. Even though scripture tells us it won't be fulfilling or other people, we still do it. And we find out it is indeed empty. So go to God for satisfaction. Go to God for your, for your food, for the bread of life, for the living water. Go to the Lord. Do not go to this world to seek satisfaction. Now, another thing is we should be really thankful that we have a God who cares enough to fight for us. Now, God is sometimes described in Scripture as a jealous God. Now, jealousy is sin when it is misplaced. When we are protecting rights that are actually not our rights that don't belong to us. But, so for purpose of illustration, if my wife was to go out with another man, again, just an illustration, it hasn't happened, but how should I react to that? Well, in fact, I should be jealous. If I was to say, "Eh, I don't care, it doesn't matter, and if I was apathetic, there would be something seriously, seriously wrong with me. Every good husband should care. Every should good, good husband should be jealous for his wife. That is a kind of righteous or holy jealousy because you are guarding that sacred marriage relationship. You are guarding that commitment that you have with your spouse. And so when God sees the Israelites go after these other gods, he is fully justified in being jealous and in wanting them to return. So we should be thankful that we have a God who fights for us and then we also should fight for our spouses. Fight for your spouse and do not give up on them easily, just as God does not. Now if we go forward in verse 8, we see that says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Now, this is a powerful reminder of God's love. Imagine again the story of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer leaves her faithful husband to live with her lover, but her lover doesn't actually provide for her. Supplies just show up in the kitchen of this new place where she's living with another guy. Uh, Grain shows up one day, another day wine and oil. Gifts show up, gold and silver and other things, jewelry, all the things that she needs to live. But they weren't actually from the man that she was with. They weren't actually from her lover. They were actually from Hosea. And he would make regular trips and secretly drop supplies and drop gifts gifts off for her. Now, instead of thanking Hosea, the giver of the gifts, she would then use these to ingratiate herself with the man, the lover, who in turn would do nothing for her. Now, this verse in verse 8 may describe actually something that happened between Jose and Gomer, or it may not. It's not very clear in the context, but it's giving us that kind of imagery of a husband who goes and provides for the wife who's being unfaithful. And so Israel was going after other gods and was receiving these things, and it was actually God who gave them these things because every good and perfect gift is from above. 
So even when Israel was unfaithful, God was faithful and he continued to give them good gifts. Israel then took these gifts, which she received from the Lord, and did what? Sacrificed them to Baal. So you see, what do we learn about God? God is faithful, God is loving, God is kind. What do we learn about people? Well, people are evil and sinful and ungrateful and unfaithful and undeserving of God's love. But he still loves us. So what are the applications for us from this part? Well, again, we should be so thankful for God's love that he is faithful to us when we are unfaithful, even when we go after these false promises in the world. And from our side, we should remember that God is the only one who has true joy and true contentment. We should go to the right place to seek after these things, just like Jesus said that he is the living water. When we drink that living water, we will never thirst again. But when we go into this world, we will find that they are waterless springs and we will thirst again and again. And in this world, our thirst will never be satisfied. So in verses 9 through 13, we see that God was going to punish Israel for its idolatry. He was going to take back the things which he had given. He says he would take back or, or take away the wool and the flax. And he was going to uncover her faithfulness. He says, I will uncover her lewdness. So he was going to expose her unfaithfulness. Verse 11 He would put an end to the festivals and to the feasts. And verse 12, he will lay waste to the vines and her fig trees. So destroy the farms and the land. And verse 13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. So God was going to punish the people of Israel for their sin and for their rebellion. Now, we are reminded throughout this passage that this is an example. God and Israel is a, like, like a marriage relationship, a picture of a marriage, and we are to be like God. We are to be the faithful ones. But this does not mean that we are to punish our spouse when they go astray. Because God is a person, not a person, he's a being who wears many hats. He's not only a husband, he's also a judge. Romans twelve nineteen says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So God is judge and friend and husband and father and many other roles. And so the punishing part was not from the perspective of his role as a husband. It was from the perspective of his role as a judge. So we are to follow all of those examples of being a faithful husband, the love and the forgiveness and the self-sacrifice. Those are the things that we need to learn to put into our marriage. So consider your own marriage. Are you quick to condemn? Are you really forgiving? Are you loving unconditionally as God has called you to love? What would you do if your spouse was unfaithful? Would the very first time, the first instance of it, would you say, you know, I'm done? Would you just give up on this relationship and tell them to go away? God calls us to forgive. So we need to be the faithful one, the committed one, and to love our spouse and to love unconditionally. And a lot of times it's not easy. God loves us when we are unlovable. Sometimes your spouse will not be very lovable, will not deserve it. We don't deserve it either. 
And so those are the times we need to make a willful choice saying, I'm going to stay in this relationship. I'm going to be committed as God is committed to us. I'm going to be faithful even when the other side doesn't deserve it. And then we need to stick it out and make the marriage work and make it as good as we can by God's grace. Israel stabbed God in the back, figuratively speaking, again and again, and he still forgave and he is still faithful. We should do the same for our spouse. Okay, let's go forward and I'll read verses 14 through 23. This is about the Lord's mercy. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Echor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy." I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Okay, so in case this wasn't clear before, this is obviously referring to Israel's relationship with God because I said before that she refers to Israel and here it says she came out of the land of Egypt. So a clear reference to Israel during the time of the Exodus. So these verses show us that God is once again going to woo Israel back to himself. And it says that I will allure her and speak tenderly to her. Now, it should not be necessary for God Almighty to have to win back that which is already his. And it shouldn't be necessary for a spouse who's already married and their spouse is is unfaithful to have to go and woo that person back to them again. So this isn't God's responsibility to do this. But we see that he really desires to have this covenant relationship with Israel. He wants to call her his people. And so in this, we see the depths of God's mercy. He's the infinite creator of the universe and he exists to eternity past. And God doesn't need people, but he still pursues us and he still wants to have a relationship with us and he even takes the initiative to do that. And so God could say, you know, I don't care. They've left and I'm just going to leave them. I'm just going to abandon them, but he doesn't. It says, he first loved us in 1 John 4, 19. He takes the initiative. And so thank God that even when we wander away and we disobey him, he tries to allure us back and he tries to bring us back to him and to speak tenderly to us like the father of the prodigal son who welcomes him back again. Verse 16, it says, In that day you will call me 
my husband. In that day, the day of the final restoration, just before the second coming, probably during the time of the seven-year tribulation, at the end times when God brings Israel as a nation back to himself and Israel as a nation believes in Jesus and finally accepts him as their Messiah. So this day is still future to us now. When you look at Israel today, the nation still does not believe in Jesus. Now there are individuals who do so, but as a group, they do not. But in that day, they will. And it says, you will call me my husband. They will come back to God. They will want a relationship with God again. And that relationship is only possible through Christ. So in verse 2, they specifically said that they were not, that he was not their husband. And now they, they will say this future day before the second coming that he is. So we see the 180 degree turn and that is what repentance is. They will reject Baal and re- will reject false gods to such an extent that it says that they will not even be remembered. The names of the Baals and the false gods, they shall be remembered by name no more. So there will be a time in Israel's future when they don't even remember the names of those idols, those false gods, which they used to worship. He would just like do a brain a brain wipe to basically remove those thoughts uh, from their minds. Okay, and it says that he will make a covenant with them in that day. Okay, and again, that day is probably a reference to the millennium. And we see here that it's not just make a covenant with them, but he says, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And then there will be no more bow, no more sword, no more war. Uh, This is likely a reference again to the millennium. Because of the fall in Genesis, then... The world is now living under a curse. It is in a fallen state. There's war, there's famine, there's all of these problems. But the millennium will be a time of peace between peoples. God will abolish war. Uh, And even fierce animals will become tame. And we see other promises uh, to that effect, like Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Okay, so... It's a promise of a future and a better time when they come back to God and say, God, we want you. We don't want anyone or anything else. And hopefully we come to that point ourselves as individuals right now too, that we can say, Jesus, I want you. You satisfy. I don't seek anything else to bring me that satisfaction. My joy comes only from you. And then God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. And he repeats this phrase three times, I will betroth you. So betroth you in righteousness and justice and also betroth in mercy and then forever. So three times. Forever denotes all of the ups and downs of Israel's spiritual life will be gone. No more will they run after idols. No more will there there be this cycle of disobedience and brokenness and coming back to God and running away and coming back. And all of this stuff will be gone. This betrothal will be forever permanent. And there will be faithfulness and steadfastness in this relationship. 
So in the past, Israel had not shown what a good marriage relationship is like. They served instead as a picture of an adulterous woman. But the future betrothal will be permanent and will be sweet. So this will be a wonderful day for Israel as a nation. How does it apply to us? Well, we remember that God has the same character qualities toward Israel that he has toward us too. And he loves them. He loves us. He forgives them. He forgives us. He offers salvation to them. He offers salvation to us. He's the same God of both Jew and Gentile. And he welcomes them and he wants a relationship with them. He also wants a relationship with you too. What a wonderful God we have who is so forgiving and so gracious. And so this passage again reminds us that there's always hope. There's always hope. No matter how far you may have gotten, or perhaps it's not even you, maybe it's someone in your life, a friend or relative, and you've prayed for that person, and you think this person will never come to Christ, they're too far gone, they're too much a rebel, God can bring them back again. And God wants to. And God wants to have a relationship with that person. So don't give up. Keep praying for them. There is still hope as long as there is breath in that person. And going forward, it says, God says that he will answer. He will answer. And we see just a beautiful picture here of the harmonious interconnection in the world and ultimately God answering who? He says he answers the heavens and he answers the earth. And then the earth answers the grain and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. So if you go back, we see, okay, Jezreel is representing Israel. And Jezreel is crying out to the crops of the field in her need for provision. And the earth answers. So the earth provides the grain and the wine and the oil and the crops. And these in turn say, okay, the grain says, I need rain. And so all this is figurative and poetic, but the grain is calling out to the heavens, I need rain. And it says the heavens answer. I will, uh, the heavens answer, the earth. And so the heavens send rain. And then the heavens itself crying out to God. God, we need you. You're the source of life and we need help from you. And God answers. So God tells the heavens to send rain to the earth and the earth bears crops. And then Israel harvests and partakes of those crops. So we see this wonderful picture of a harmonious world where people live in harmony with creation and people live in harmony with God. There's no more this brokenness, this strife, this division that sin has caused. Uh, All of that has been fixed and people are once again restored in a beautiful and wonderful relationship with God. Uh, And they are his covenant people. So creation was not originally designed as we see it now. Originally, people served as stewards of a cooperative creation, and these provided abundantly and easily. But after the fall, the world became cursed. And so man had to work very, very hard to bring sustenance up from the earth. And we see that curse in Genesis 3, 17, 
cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And it talks about thorns and thistles and things like that. And it says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So basically, this world is cursed. But here in Hosea, we see that one day this curse will be rolled back and the world itself will be renewed. Now, this passage is directly specified to Israel, but actually all believers in Christ will be there at that time. So what a glorious future we have to look forward to. Let's put our hope in Christ and in this future, which the Lord promises rather than in anything the world has to offer, which will be very, very empty. So in conclusion in this chapter, he says, I will say to not my people, you are my people. And if you remember in chapter 1, Hosea was commanded to call two of his children, no mercy and not my people. But here's a reminder, that's temporary. That judgment, that discipline was temporary as a way to bring the nation back to himself. And so at that time, that judgment will be gone and perhaps even forgotten. Those people who were not his people will be his people again. Those people who did not experience his mercy at that time will experience it again. A visible reminder that though Israel had broken off their relationship with God, now they will be welcomed back into relationship with him again. And the child whose name was not my people would then one day be renamed my people. So what a beautiful passage this is reminding us that God is a merciful God. So at the beginning, we looked at the question to show mercy or not to show mercy. That is the question. God holds judgment in one hand and mercy in another. And if we continue in disobedience to God, going our own way, then judgment will come. Now in this world, that judgment is meant to push us back to the hand of mercy. Even the judgment itself has mercy together with it because it's a reminder that we need to repent. So we are all in need of God's mercy. And the good news for us is he gives it and he gives it abundantly. So go to the Lord, receive mercy from him, and then after you're filled up with his mercy and grace, you can show that same mercy and grace and forgiveness to those around you. I hope that this passage has encouraged you. I would invite you to like and subscribe. That is one way that you can support this channel to push this message to more people. Thank you so much for joining and I hope to see you next time as we study Hosea chapter 3. God bless. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.